0: Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world.
1: We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation
0: and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of encojunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin.
1: Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor.
0: Dr. Robin, how are you? Well, I I feel like we have to tell people about our conundrum, that my headphones weren't working right and you sounded like a robot and I thought you all went techno on me or something like that. Right. You know, it's, it's
1: the behind the scenes piece of this podcast recording is a a calamity of errors. We
0: should do a whole podcast episode on how we like every week we have something happen.
1: Yes, it's, it's actually, it, I wish it weren't true. I wish I could say that out of the last, however, we've done 34 episodes, uh, that out of the last 34 episodes, we have had one that has been absolutely perfect. Absolutely right. perfect. And we can't say that. Like, no. it's, it's just not the case.
0: Um, but what's amazing is in those 34 episodes, we've had over 12,000 downloads.
1: It, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, To say we're grateful is an understatement. I mean, I'm just, I'm still surprised every week that those of you that are, um, you know, committed and, and constant companions of ours are joining in, are listening, are, um, you know, sharing this hour with us and, and giving us, uh, your ear and, and letting us be in community with you. I'm, I am
0: surprised i I, sh- I probably shouldn't be surprised at this point but i'm still surprised well and people really like that conversation our honest conversation about defunding the police and so yes i really yeah. i really like that people are you know like leaning into to what we're talking about and figuring out how they can fit our analysis into their lived experience and that's been really exciting for me to see. But how are you is, is the more appropriate question for me to ask.
1: I am, I am good. I am good. I have had a, um, I've had a a good weekend. Um, You know, we had a um, holiday weekend, which, you know, this holiday is always weird for me. Um, uh, From a, you know, a capitalist and um, uh, supremacist, standpoint kind of the understanding of what labor rights really means mm-hmm. and should mean in our in our context but um, I've had a good weekend my sweet little um, puppy who we have spoken about several times on this podcast turns two years old this week and and um, so we're very excited. We are those parents that have planned a party. Yeah. Uh, we we uh, go to this really great um, dog park, outdoor dog park with um, a lot of friends that, you know, Ruthie is good friends with. and Ruthie and some of her friends are going to have a celebrate
0: her birthday this week. So are you going to do it at the dog park? We are. Oh cool. We are. I wish I could be there hashtag that dog mom.
1: That's officially officially
0: what I am this week. How about you? How's your week then? I mean, I took two siestas yesterday because hashtag Labor Day. Yes. I'm like, I have permission to take two siestas, Mm -hmm. but I, um, you know, I'm working on the next book and I'm writing about becoming, and I'm trying to write about it in a way that makes sense to people, but that also doesn't butcher my training in philosophy. And, um, so trying to tend to that as carefully as I can. Um, but really loved my weekend. Um, we grilled out, Aaron and I had a date night on Saturday and I cooked a pasta dish and, um, it was just a really great weekend. And, um her mom is coming on Thursday, so we're like preparing for that and and her mom is a seven like you, and so yes. there's gonna be lots of energy in the house. Lots of energy, lots of glitter farting, yeah. lots of
1: rainbow vomiting. It's yeah. gonna be so amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're
1: resting up. Good. Yes, you must prepare. You you will be quickly drained yeah. of that energy that you recouped this weekend as soon yeah. as the amazing the amazing Margot gets in the house. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited that that she's going to be there. And I know you guys are are excited to be able to yeah. spend some time yeah. together. Well, we're really lucky this week that. I say that every week, but I do feel like every week we're very lucky when we have an amazing guest like we have uh, this week on with us. Um, we are going to be joined this week by Jack Jenkins, who is um, an award-winning journalist and reporter for the Religion News Service. Um, he uh is both a writer of, or a journalist on religion, but also a journalist on politics. And for anybody that listens to this podcast, you know, you know that we are committed to understanding as well as dissecting the intersection of both of those things. Um, Both how they work in conjunction with each other, how they work apart from each other, and how they how the overlapping of religion and politics are oftentimes problematic in the ways that we've set up a you know supremacist and and fundamentalist hierarchy of of you know religious power in, in this country. Um, Jack has an amazing book out that Robin and I have both read that that we love called American Prophets and. I think, I think everyone should be really excited that this conversation is about to take place. So welcome, Jack, to the Activist Theology
2: Podcast. Thanks so much for having
1: me. We're really excited you're here. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about um, kind of where you find yourself in this space, um, expand a little bit on my very brief and novice intro of you. Um, just let folks know kind of uh, what kind of work you're doing in the world.
2: Yeah. Um, so my day job is that I am a national reporter for Religion News Service, which is a wire um, that covers religion news. I My job is to cover primarily the intersection of religion and politics, which, you know, is a very broad um, an expansive yeah. beat, and then in addition yeah. to that, I cover Catholicism in particular. So, like two thirds of my beat is religion and politics, and a third is just Catholicism, and they often overlap um, quite frequently. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in addition to that, you know, I also uh, wrote a book recently, um, as you noted, you know, American prophets that deals with religion and politics, particularly those on well, more the left side of the spectrum. And I've been doing various versions of this work since, you know, 2014-ish, um, of kind of covering these, these, you know, overlaps between the faith that people, um, you know, hold in their hearts and, and, you know, in their worship spaces and how that can impact, um, the body politic that we all participate in. Uh, so that's how I spend my days.
1: But you haven't just come at this work um, as a journalist. I mean, you have a master's of divinity, correct? You are yes. you are a religious studies nerd like Robin and I are. So, I mean, you you <laughs> your your beat, as you call it, is not just informed by what's happening in the world, but it's also informed by the academia side of your of your resume.
2: Yes, I um, I went to divinity school, graduated back in 2012, and what I studied there was the intersection of media and politics and religion. Um, And I was, I was a big old, and still remain a big old religion nerd um, in that regard. A lot of what I studied then were these moments of overlap. I actually interned at Religion News Service while I was there, um, and, you know, didn't come back until many years later, but you know, really kind of found this to be a fascinating topic. I was also really into religion and space at the time. My, my master's thesis was actually on the uh, religion and outer space, which is a whole other conversation. Um, I was going to say, we could do a
1: whole podcast
2: episode just
0: on that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I, fear, I, I hear the aliens barking right now.
2: <laughs> there are, it is, it is a, another broad topic that I've been trying to carve out as my third beat is religion and space. My editors will only let me get out a couple of years. Um but the the you know, I really do kind of for me, I mean and I grew up in the Southeast as a person of faith. Um my undergraduate degree um was at Presbyterian College, um which is a denomin a school affiliated with the denomination of the Presbyterian Church USA, which is the denomination I grew up in. Um, you know, I also worked in politics. Um, before going to divinity school. And so, you know, for me, these questions of faith and how people operate in the political sphere have been kind of close to me, um, you know, since, as, as far as I can remember, frankly. Sure. Um, and, and I think that, that's, that like you say, the kinds of stuff I studied in school, I really do actually use my degree every day um that in, in a very practical um real way because it is it is the stuff i studied then now they let me basically study it in public and tell people about it as yep. a journalist
0: i love that i love that well jack i'm wondering if we can just spend a little bit of time on your book um for those who might be listening who might really be interested actually in american Profits, i found it to be a fascinating read but i'm i feel curious about something um you know, I think one of the things that, that has bubbled up throughout our political sphere, certainly over the past four years, but even prior to that is that there lacks, um, a kind of cohesive, organized religious left, if there is such a thing. And I'm wondering if in your research and the writing of the book that, you saw a more cohesive unit and it's just not visible to the rest of us.
2: So this is, I, I'm really grateful for this question um, and I'll try not to give 12 answers, which is probably the most accurate way to approach it because yes. I, I think a, a short answer is that the religious left exists at a blo- as a block every once in a while. And what I mean by that yep. is, you know, the religious left, and I, and I want to note up front that that term, which I use frequently in my book, is actually contested by many of the figures that I, that I profile yeah. in the book, but for very different reasons. Um, some people claim it, other people think that it's, it sounds too much like the religious right. Um, and other people think that the religious left only specifically um, can be used to describe, you know, democratic socialists who you know, are people of faith. And I think that kind of sums up in just like the political realm, how many different agendas and ideas you can have operating in the same space. And on top of that, the, the ma- massive diversity of religious diversity within the religious left. You have so many different faith groups that are operating in this broad umbrella, often with different agendas or ideas of what they should prioritize as policy concerns. Um, and what has traditionally happened over the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years is that many of these groups, either as individual faith groups or as smaller coalitions, will organize around specific issues right so that's something like the um the immigration movement for instance or the um climate change movement those will have different faith people with um people of faith within them who might lean progressive but they're not necessarily all hanging out with each other so to speak um at, as a block but what has been interesting is that you know while a lot of the movements that i chronicle in the book were founded and got their big you know um start underneath after the obama administration many of them were critiquing The Obama administration, arguably from the left on many issues. The election of Donald Trump in particular seems to have been a really, um, you know, calcifying force for a lot of these disparate groups where there started to become this idea that they can operate in tandem. They can literally march together because so many of their issues were all, um, from their perspective, all under a front from the same administration. And I think, you know, one of the moments I point to is actually an event that I referenced in the book um, that happened last year, which was the, the Poor People's Campaign, which is run by Reverend yeah. William Barber, had a presidential candidates forum in Washington, D.C. And for anybody who's been following William Barber's work, you know, he originally kind of helped launch this Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina that got all these disparate groups to show up in the same place using a method of what he calls fusion organizing, and that is actually credited as one of the reasons for the unseating of the Republican governor in that state back in 2016, one of the only bright spots for Democrats on election night back then. Um, and so here he was whole, um, hosting this presidential candidates forum. And in that room, you had representatives from many, if not all of the movements that I referenced in the book, the indigenous rights movement, the environmental movement, immigrant rights movements, LGBTQ rights movements, all in that room, And they were all talking to candidates, and it's notable that nine different Democratic candidates all showed up. There there was going to be ten, but you know, cool Astro missed his flight, and um, they're talking Mm. to this coalition of overwhelmingly faith-based advocates, and that this group was seen as this this um, this this collective that they needed to win over. That you know, this included Joe Biden, this included Bernie Sanders, this was Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. Um, these were mm-hmm. groups that, that they wanted to win over. And that says a lot about how the religious left, when pushed into um, a place where they, they recognize a, a common cause, can be something that doesn't just have um, an effect, you know, in, ter- in, in terms of their respective issue areas, but can kind of peek through in a big way um, into the greater expanse of politics that we watch. And, I'll, and one other example I'll point to is just that, you know, if you, even if you, if you don't buy that, It's worth noting that black Protestants in particular have proven to be a very influential group at the ballot box. Um, And they're arguably the reason that Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee at all to begin with. And they are also one of the main reasons that, um, because of his victory in South Carolina, but they're also one of the reasons that Doug Jones is actually one of the first Democratic senators from Alabama. When he won that um, special election there a few years ago, Admittedly, his opponent, Roy Moore, was a uniquely flawed candidate for any number of reasons, including allegations of sexual assault of minors.
1: See, that's a, that's a very delicate way to say it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and but when an election analyst went back, they noted that you know, the big thing that put Doug Jones over the top there was that was the massive representation of African-American voters in that state, particularly black Protestants, a lot of whom were coming literally from church to the polls. And so I think mm-hmm. that kind of points to these moments of, of the religious left has continued to exert influence as a block, um, even in, even if it doesn't necessarily look that way. And I think it's telling that this year to bring this full circle next week, Joe Biden will be speaking at a virtual event hosted by the Poor People's Campaign. So I, I think it's a thing that doesn't it's not like the religious right. There's nothing on the left that looks like the religious right of this really top down machine politics structure. But there are moments when the religious left is symbols around common cause where they can make a difference. Yeah.
1: Well, and I would say it's not all that different from the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party in general. I mean, you know, the the mm-hmm. the Republican Party is a machine in and of itself. Um, the GOP has you know radical systems in place, as does the religious right. Um, the religious left, or in whatever term we want to name it, often echoes the. Organizational loosey goosiness of the Democratic Party in very similar ways. I mean, we, I mean, right, wrong, or indifferent. There, there are a lot of ways in which you know those of us who are you know sit definitively on the left side of issues can't get our shit together in you know in one way <laughs> or the other.
2: Right. No, I, I actually, I, I, one of the things I've said to people to, to completely echo you is that many of the criticisms lobbed against the religious left to say, oh, it's like ineffective or it never really congeals are almost word for word. The criticisms made of the Democratic Party right. or the broader progressive coalition. So they have the, the religious left is but one coalition of coalitions among the broader coalition of coalitions that is the Democratic Party and the progressive. Um, coalition in general, so I, I 100% agree with that.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I I wonder, I wonder, Jack, You know, one of the things that I try to steward in in my work is a non institutional approach or a non hegemonic approach to theology and ethics. Mm. And I'm wondering if you found remnants of that or contours of that as as you wrote this book, because when I hear the term block, what I immediately think of as a hegemonic block. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that's not what, what you mean. And so I wonder if, are there, are there um, contours of non-institutional folks who are, who are stewarding this conversation on the religious left so that it's not so churchy or not so religious, um,
2: maybe more spiritual. Is there any of that? Yes, I mean, well, so a few different things at once. I mean, to your point, yes, when I when I talk about blocks, it's, 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 I'm really talking about election day, you know, and it's one yeah. of those things where that's how we dictate power in a lot of ways here in, in the United States. And so that's what we're referring to. But what's interesting, about what you raise is that I think part of the reason that people have difficulty kind of wrapping their heads around the religious left is because it, it, with embedded within it, there's so many of the communities that that participate in the religious left come from historically disenfranchised communities. So the reason I bring that up is because the religious right, they are often very successful at the ballot box and in the courts, for instance. Those are areas that have been off limits or have had difficulty um, or there are barriers to access for many of the communities that are within the religious left. But one of the things that, you know, you um, often still have at your disposal when you're not allowed the same access to um, elite schools or um, systems of power or um, or, you know, even the ballot box is the art of protest. And that's why mm-hmm. protest in particular has become. This really important language and, and way of influencing power, um, at least in my reporting, among religious pro- progressives, it's how they're still able yeah. to actualize change. And so they, you know, for in a lot of ways, they're they're non-hegemonic by default because yeah, <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, you know, they're not allowed the access to those systems. And so, um, but in addition to that, your 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 sec- second point, kind of, you know, this. There have been moments of tension between, you know, more overtly religious progressives and those for whom, you know, that's not a very safe space um, or Mm -hmm. it's something that they find uncomfortable. What's interesting to me is that a lot of that tension has actually kind of been relieved after the election of Donald Trump. At least, I don't know if that's a temporary thing or if that's kind of like, you know, people have earned credibility back with each other, if that makes any sense. But um, but I think there is often a moment where there's this tension, even between, you know, more secular advocates and religious ones, but even among religious advocates of whether you kind of approach the concept of pluralism as one in which you kind of dilute the particularity of each religious tradition right. and try to find common cause, or if you say, no, you get to be fully and profoundly expressive of whatever your faith tradition is. Mm-hmm. It's just, do you also agree with us on this issue, <laughs> You know, and that right. dialogue is an ongoing one that I found um, different approaches to that same problem, depending on which activist you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. Fascinating.
1: I love that we're having this conversation. I wonder if we could take it even down an, an additional road um, in that kind of multi-faith, interfaith, um, intersectionality um, within the religious left. Um are you, have you found yourself being critical or at least, um, uh, unsure of our capacity to work with, um, progressives of, of other faith, um, doctrines, or are you seeing a coalescence of the work, regardless of whether it's, a uh, Baha'i community or a Jewish community or a Christian community, um, you know, fill in the blank, on and on. Are, are there, do we have the capacity to also name that or do you think that that's still a, a bit of a speed bump for us?
2: Well, I think, uh, I think the tensions re- um, exist whether or not people want to acknowledge them. I mean, the most prominent one that has come up in interfaith circles and then also in the Democratic and Progressive Coalition's in general, is, of course, Israel-Palestine and, and different points of dialogue around, um, you know, the state of Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories, right? Like, this is this conversation point that, interestingly, the religious left was already having really deep branding their own debates and conversations about this issue, and then when it became a flashpoint in progressive politics in general, you know, particularly around Ilhan Omar or other politicians, it was actually kind of religious left figures who kind of, like, came in and offered guidance to different democratic officials saying, you know, we've been, we've been debating this for some time, but it, it is a thing that like has come up as, you know, how do these different religious groups that might all be inclined to vote for Democrats or be a part of progressives, um, you know, movements, you know, if they disagree around this, this issue or, or constellation of issues, how are they going to mitigate that? It also exists in this uh, moment we talk about now where like, One of the things that came out during the Democratic National Convention a few weeks ago was how often people talked about faith in general and Joe Biden's faith in particular during that convention. But if you looked at the kind of faith that was being talked about there, it was often kind of this appeal to more moderate or even conservative Christians, Republicans, and Democrats. And that's not the same kind of appeals to faith that you will hear if you were to, say, show up at some immigrant rights protests right. um, you know, in, in here at the United States or, or a Black Lives Matter protest mm-hmm. um, or any number of movements for racial justice and immigrant rights. Um, and not just to sing out those two movements, you also hear, hear some pretty, what they might classify as radical theology at, at environmental demonstrations as well. And so there becomes this question of whether or not those folks who you know, might be persuaded to vote for a Democrat on election day are really part of the religious left, so to speak. If they're really part of this coalition, are they going to line up in, in march to end um, the deportation of immigrants, for instance? Would they participate in the New Sanctuary for a movement? And I think you often get question marks when you're asked that kind of stuff. And this is often a point of tension we see even in some um, circles where you know the members are longtime members of the religious left. For instance, mm-hmm. in Catholic circles, while you have seen a lot of um, conversation debate around, for instance, same sex marriage and abortion, where a lot of prominent liberal Catholics kind of side with the majority of Catholics in the country when, because when polled, actually, most, um, Catholics, um, support same sex marriage and believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Um, the church doesn't say that, right? And so you right. do have some really stalwart people who might be really big into labor rights as Catholics who stop short of showing up to an event because they can't sign the dotted line endorsing same-sex marriage, LGBTQ equality, um, relationships and equality in general, or any number of other reasons. And so there does seem to be this sort of like switching of roles depending on what issue you're talking about. And those criticisms are real. And even one thing I found interesting when I was interviewing people in the book, um, when I was talking to indigenous rights demonstrators, people who were very active in Standing Rock, um, they were talking about how for them, you know, Standing Rock, you know, the demonstrations in Malakia and Hawaii, uh, also demonstrations in the American Southwest, um, for indigenous rights for them. These are very overtly spiritual gatherings. They refer often to their right. protest camps as prayer camps. And when they sit down with other environmentalists, they talk about how there's often this chasm of misunderstanding around spirituality and faith and how that for them, they're like no this is this is a spiritual cause for us and they sometimes feel not always but sometimes feel like people on the other end of that table misunderstand them or don't grasp it as a driving force in um, what they do and so it, it's, it's i do think that these conversations are happening at a granular level these sorts of points of tension or disconnect or things that need to be worked out and i think that there are arguably significantly more of these than you would find in the religious right which is relatively um significantly more Um, hegemonic in any number of ways, but uh, whether or not that, you know, these coalitions have done the work to try to truly move past those points, you know what I mean, where in the sense where this is a conversation that has been had as opposed to one that is always being had, um, I don't think that's the case yet. I think the religious left doesn't, hasn't codified itself and may never by design ever codify itself in a way where those sorts of disagreements are ever finished.
1: I, um... I, I want to share a little bit of a story and um, we are, I, I live here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And when the, um, Several weeks ago when Nick Cannon made his, you know, completely inappropriate comments around, you know, about uh, Jewish folk and, and and really kind of uh-huh. flame, fanned the flames of anti-Semitism in a way that, you know, just was completely unnecessary in this moment in time. Uh-huh. Um, one of our black activists um, uh, came into a bit of tension with one of the rabbis in town um, because she... Uh-huh um, named, um, things that were a challenge to her. And, and our rabbi was, you know, um, you know, doing his best to name things she was saying as he saw them as anti-Semitic, but also to affirm the fact that the Black Lives Matter movement is what's most important in the work and that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do his, his synagogue any good to, um, to criticize her overtly when it really is the movement of Black Lives Matter that is most important on 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 the on the lips of of all of us right now, um, and it was a really mm-hmm. interesting time for us here in our interfaith work in Chattanooga because we were all of the sudden faced with um, what we all knew to be true, which was you know the the difference. At, and the, in some ways, um, disastrous naming of uh, tropes and uh, story and perception that has, you know, caused um, faith communities to, to divide and, and fight for their own rights for, for hundreds of years now. Um, but we were watching it happen within our little community in a really mm-hmm. unexpected and kind of unsettling way um, it, it happened out of the blue it wasn't it wasn't the thing that any of us wanted to talk about and yet we were confronted with it. <laughs> I, I name the story because I think that as we're looking at the way that the religious left and specifically kind of in these couple of months coming up to um, the election in November, uh, we have to be really careful, like which ball we have our eye on, um, mm-hmm. and it's so easy for Robin and I, I. I we talk about this all the time. I think the progressive left, um, whether you're talking of faith circles or or um, religious circles, like we have a tendency to eat our own, whether we mm-hmm. you know want to or not, um, or whether we intend to or not. Are you seeing enough of a, of 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 a motivating factor behind getting rid of Donald Trump from the office of the presidency? Um, or do you think that we have the capacity to still fall into this um, you know this this chasm of watching the wrong thing and focusing on the wrong thing so much so that we allow another four years of this to happen?
2: Right. Um, that's a really excellent question. And and I, def, I defer to y'all's experience as well because as a reporter, this is something I. It's, it's actually the, the root of your question is one I I often ask um, in my own reporting, which is that you know the stability of this coalition and whether or not you know what it means to kind of coalesce come November and what it will mean whether they're able to continue um, to remain coalesced after November. Right. So on the one hand, I do see um, and and have reported for some time a unique motivating element in the election, the rise in election of Donald Trump for the religious left. There's a reason that people that these leaders of the religious left who had been very active under the Obama administration were suddenly elevated beyond just the contours of the religious left and suddenly elevated to the point of being some of the leaders of the left in general, right? It would be some of the most prominent activists um, under the Trump administration have been people who belong to these progressive faith spaces. And um, and I think that kind of speaks to how so many of these groups were willing to, you know, if there were differences or, um, that were major, were willing to put them aside to say, look, you know, um, or even even if the disagreements continue to happen, are able to say, you know, even if people are eating their young, so to speak, they're still willing to say, step aside from a, a leadership position or, um, or abandon, a campaign to say, look, our eye is on you know, defeating the Trump administration, either at the ballot box or, you know, in um, the halls of power, depending on what piece of legislation was up, um, given what w- any time in the past three and a half years. And so I do genuinely think that it has been um, a uniquely motivating moment for many members of this coalition. But I do have a lingering question of whether or not this coalition could survive were, stage Joe Biden be elected um, i genuinely am curious how many of these partnerships and relationships that have been founded under the context of defeating um, trumpism and you know many of the the mechanisms of white supremacy that have accompanied his rise for instance um, whether right. a lot of these relig- religious left coalitions would continue, would endure mm-hmm, if you right. know if, if if a democrat were in office or if they would kind of return to their respective camps and continue to do the work they were doing under Obama, which is often criticizing the Democratic administration. And I I will say that this is something that is a different ethic than what you will find in religious right circles. It's not to say the religious right doesn't often criticize, um, doesn't sometimes criticize Republicans, they do. But the overriding ethic of many religious left organizers and activists that I run into is one that is not at all beholden to a party. Um, they're beholden, um, to, a, um, to a God or gods that they hold dear and for, from their perspective, you know, to be co-opted by the political elite would be to, it would be heresy. And so, um, it is a question to me whether or not they could still see themselves once they, if, if they were say informing the Biden administration, whether that they would do that from, you know, a meeting room, or they would do that from the streets in protest, um, you know, and whether there would be religious left activists in both spaces at the same time. And I don't have a, um, a, a firm answer to that question just yet. And so I, I share your hesitancy to, 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 to say that the religious left has codified for a generation, as it were. Um, I, it really kind of seems more at the moment driven by Donald Trump
1: right yeah and then make no make no mistake about it you know even if and hoping that joe biden gets elected uh, the 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 values of supremacy and the understanding of religion in this country resting primarily on the shoulders of white christian landowning men is not going to stop like all of the all of the stuff that comes with supremacist supremacy culture and all of the stuff that comes with faith and values being you know tied to what people think of as a a white male christianity protestant christianity isn't going to stop if if biden gets elected and so i i mean i my personal hope is that you know whatever whatever coalition has been formed continues to do this this radical and intentional work because just because biden's in the white house doesn't mean that the the way that we treat black and brown people in this country is going to radically change overnight it's just not i mean all -hmm, of these things Mm -hmm. are going to continue to permeate and continue to be an issue um one election especially one election of a moderate progressive candidate is not is not going to do us any favors
0: mm-hmm. well especially a candidate who is appealing to the right right Correct. Now, to tr- you know so i feel like one of the things that i've been thinking about and jack i want to hear the thought that you're just about to share is that we might very well have to protest biden do we have do we have the strategy to formulate a response to a democratic president who is moderate right when so many of us are center left and and far left um how do we organize one another to respond because not doing anything is not is not an an option but so many of us are very tired
2: from the fight. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that fatigue in my reporting comes up a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, and that's a question actually, if Donald Trump were reelected, actually, if whether or not the religious left would continue because the the fatigue, the protest oh, fatigue is horrible. very right for yeah. many of these communities. <laughs> and, but to your point, I mean, I do think, I mean, one of the things i found fascinating is, you know, how the religious left has tried to work has, has worked to try to mitigate these internal conflicts, right? So one of the things I point out in the book is that, you know, a group of Christian socialists really kind of felt like the um, the poor people's campaign was inadequate in their criticism of capitalism, for instance. And so they like ish, sent a letter, a group of Christian socialists to the poor people's campaign saying, you know, we really would like it if you were more critical of capitalism or if you could, you know, in, in, from from their perspective, you'd really be more overtly pro-socialist in your Um, Dialogue and those are faith-based activists too, and that's just in probably more what we're talking about more of the left side of the religious left. But what do you do when you have you know these more moderate um, um, people of faith who are you know entered into saying, "Oh, I'm a Biden Democrat," as it were, Um, and the religious left starts demonstrating against a Biden demonstration, and they and they say, "Hey, no, I'm I'm a person of faith. I feel well. Why aren't you letting this guy?" Get done what he wants to get done. Now you're just coming after us. You know, why, why would, why are you eating your young as it were? You're trying to borrow a phrase from activists. But, you know, I do think that is a genuine question because I, my, my reflexive answer is that, you know, these, a lot of these groups were pretty critical of Obama and right? they, they'll probably be perfectly willing to, to pick up um, the campaigns that they were initiating under his tenure under Biden as well. And a lot of them saw movement from the Obama administration when they were willing to do that. And so from their perspective, you know, while it, just because the Democrats in power doesn't mean you stop advocating to change the way you advocate. And I, one of the things that one activist, one immigrant rights activist told me um, when I was doing interviews for the book was that the difference between demonstrating against uh, the Trump administration and demonstrating against the Obama administration is that with the Obama administration, you at least knew you had a potentially sympathetic ear. That mm-hmm. like the, the the potential for change and for alteration in a policy or our approach was was real and um, achievable. Whereas with you know demonstrating as the Trump administration, it's just often trying to stop things as opposed to you know think that, that, that Trump's mind or his administration's mind will be magically changed by your moral argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that does change the tenor of the kind of demonstrations that are being waged. But, you know, do I think that there's going to be disagreement um, and if, if Biden were elected president, you know, that there would be fractures among the religious left where some would be more institutional and closer to the administration and others would be, you know, blowing up their phones, phones or protesting outside of their offices, demanding more. Yeah, yeah. I, I would be surprised if that isn't the case. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Are there, is there a possibility, Jack, that we see a um, shift among this religious left um, understanding to be um, more radical? Or do you think that there is safety or uh, a security in kind of the current messaging that they're, that they're putting out into the world? I mean, do you, do you see that there's like I mean are they like sitting you know comfortable in this in this space, or do you think that there's a desire to be more to be more aggressive?
2: Uh, <laughs> again, i I, I want to be careful to say that I don't want to speak for these advocates. Um, however, I mean, attending some of the the demonstrations that happened under the Obama administration um, with a lot of these advocates and hearing the theology articulated there, and then hearing, some of the theology that's articulated against the Trump administration, um, and then hearing some of the theology that's articulated in and around getting Biden elected. I heard more, you know, if we want to call it radical theology back in 2014 compared to 2020. No one has given up that theological disposition. I don't think anybody has, has, has you know abandoned um, these religious beliefs that often call for a radical transformation of society. Um, the, 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 target, um, for lack of a better word, or, or the goal has changed because Trump was elected. So I would actually expect, you know, a lot of these faith communities come out of, you know, when you, y'all know better than I do, a lot of these faith communities are some of the most radical of the radical. You right, know, right. Ask them about their right. ideology. You know, they're, they're sitting there, they're, they're sitting there wanting to advocate for things that other people would think were, you know, even, even left wing progressive advocates would think we're 30, 40 years away from. You, know, you hear some progressive people of faith, whether they're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, talking about creating a new kind of community um, that <laughs> that they may want to help create right. now and have this spiritual charge to do so. And so my expectation is that, you know, one of the things that, that's interesting about faith based advocates is that you they often come from a theology that is deeply radical. But they will often come to um, come to their their political language with a pastoral edge. There's this element of both righteous um, indignation and you know standing up um, for the least of these as a as a moral and religious call, and also wanting to bring people with them. So wanting to have this pastoral language attached to it to help persuade and you know comfort those who might not be willing to jump on board um, with all of the theology. But if it, but if the need to really persuade um, dilutes a little bit, if you, if you have a Democrat in office, I would expect a lot of these communities to kind of reflexively go back to the radical theology that they believe and worship and preach every Sunday or on Thursday or on Friday, or whatever have you, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, I mean, for a lot of these people, they would argue that while, while humanity might not be there yet, the commands of their faith are really radical and always have been. Um, and so yeah I, I think they would they they're arguably more be more comfortable in a radical space um, than in a more institutional democratic party's um, space if that makes any sense
1: it does I, I think I'm I am hesitant to like when you when you speak of you know activists kind of moving in spaces that where they feel or are or are called to bleed in a more pastoral way like that feels really icky to me um not because it's not true but because it's just icky like it's it it feels it feels very (laughs) it, It it just feels as if um you know once again our understanding of of faith and spirituality um is 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 expected to kind of fall in line with whoever the perceived leader on that day or that that you know that issue. Mm. You know, like whoever whoever the leader is in that moment is is who we is who we fall in line with. And um, you know, for for all of us that are doing this work in a progressive faith space, um, you know, that's where that's that's ego, that's ego, that's arrogance, that's mm-hmm. that's everything that you know. For me as a Christian, I believe Jesus cautioned us against, um, and 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 many other mm-hmm. faith traditions would say, you know. The same, um, and so I, I I think it's it's really hard, right, Robin? Because we're we're watching the king of all egos try to guide a faith um, conversation in this country. He, he's he is he is someone who has absolutely no idea um, that when you open up the Bible to the center, you're likely to get to Psalms. Um, he has no idea um, uh, who any of the players are in any faith tradition h- historically. I mean, he really is so uneducated when it comes to this evangelical Christian right faith that he claims to be the 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 fighter for the the one that's going to charge right. on the battlefield for, um, and and yet it's that kind of ego that often leads even religious left faith leaders into the
0: work that they're doing in the streets. Well, I'm just thinking about how, at least now we're in a milieu of decentralized leadership and shared leadership and shared power that to have such a display of a monopoly of power in the White House, it you know, I, I feel like those who are BLM supporters and are fighting for Black lives writ large, there is just a different orientation to power and leadership than what is displayed in the White House. And I, and, you know, like my hope and prayer is that Biden is elected. I'm just going to put that in, out into the universe. And, and yet what, what we know about that is that There may not be such a such a brash ego power trip, but there is still really unhelpful power patterns that will manifest in a Biden presidency that that will require those of us on the left, whatever that means, to to continue to strategize through shared leadership and shared power. And, you know, my hope is that we're able to do that in a way that is productive and generative, but, you know, as, as we've already talked about, movement fatigue is real. And I think we live in very uncertain times. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. I think there's a lot to that. Um, that I I will note that one of the things, one of the reasons I, I, that, that I refer to kind of profits in my book is that. Um, one interesting thing about the religious left is that they they haven't traditionally, for reasons I've explained, had access to power. Um, but also theologically, they haven't proven themselves particularly good at it. And by that, I mean like that they often, you know, throughout history, haven't really aspired right. to be right. the powerful. Right. Um, they're, you know, pr- prophets rarely make good presidents. And so, um, what, what I think is really interesting about that is that it 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 has been you know people often see that as a weakness of the movement that they don't they aren't like the religious right and that they don't like really kind of march through um, the the things you you know quote unquote need to do to be able to become the powerful. But what I think is really interesting um, in in the groups that I've. Um, kind of reported on is that they don't really seem interested in being the powerful. They just want the powers that be to change to you know, give them basic human rights from their perspective. Yeah. And and that's a different theological ethic yeah. than you'll find on the right. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you won't have you know people line themselves with the powerful. It doesn't mean that doesn't happen all the time. It's just the ethic um, that permeates these communities is often very different. Yeah. Than the one. There's less the celebration of power than there is a the celebration of good Right, power. Right. Which f- to me, as a trans and queer
0: person who is also Mexican-American, I relish in that kind of celebration because it's it's a kind of dismantling of racial ethnic norms that that keep people like myself disenfranchised. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Man, Jack, we could talk about this all day. I think that, I think that we are, um, I think, I I mean, I think the challenge for, for me as a faith leader and as someone that's, you know, in the middle of the work is that there's like, there's so much to do. And yet I still see so much wrong with what we're doing. Um, And, and it's, and it's knowing the difference between, um, or identifying the, the work in a way that, you know, shares power, decentralizes supremacy culture, um, gets ego out of the way. Um, all of the things that that we as um, followers of a, a higher power would strive to do in our day to day. And yet we're trying to watch it happen on the stage of the largest, you know, political um Football field in in the world, uh, and 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 I'm I'm yeah. I'm grateful that you're doing this work. I'm I'm thankful that your voice is one that that we get to listen to on a regular basis and read on a regular basis. Um, why don't you tell our folks how they can find you, how they can follow you, um, where they can grab the book. Um, let them know. Let them know what the best place to to, to reach you is.
2: Sure. Um, so if you, if you want to read my articles, I write, um, at Religion News Service, which is ReligionNews.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jack, J-A-C-K-M, Jenkins, J-E-N-K-I-N-S. Um, you can follow me on Facebook at, you know, slash Jack is writing. Um, if you want to find me there. And my book is again, American Prophets, the religious roots of progressive politics and the ongoing fight for the soul of the country. Um, I'll just note that you know, there's a lot of different places that you can buy a book, but in the midst of the you know coronavirus pandemic, local bookstores yes. are really struggling. Yep. Um, so, if there's a way for you to be able to purchase, if you want to buy my book and you're able to do so, um, you know, safely and order it um, somehow from your local bookstore, these are these are groups um, and and stores that just are are really a, a lifeblood of keeping us all informed. Um, in, the, in our day-to-day and are struggling right about now. So I'd encourage you to figure out a way to grab one from them, um, wherever your local bookstore is, um, local independent bookstore, if possible, um, if you can. Thank you so much, Dad. this is so good.
1: So good, so good. Well, friends, we will see you again next week. Um, Robin and I will be back. I will tell you all about the birthday, the epic, Ruthie Bader birthday party that's about to happen um, this week for my two-year-old dog. Um, I know, I know, all of you are going to be just waiting for a, a week until you can hear that update. Um, and I'm sure that Robin will have something also titillating or salacious to share with us next week as well. As, as always, always. Um, friends, don't forget to follow us at Activist Theology in all of the places that you uh, that you receive your socials. Don't forget that Activist and Theology share a tea. Um, We'd also love for you to support this podcast if you're willing, if you (laughs) have um, uh, some funds that you are willing to allocate our way, we'd be grateful. Um, We do all of this out of pocket and we're thankful when any of you support the work. You can do that at kindful.activisttheology.com. That's kindful, K-I-N-D-F-U-L, dot activisttheology.com. And Dr. Robin, until next week, we will keep up the good work. We'll keep fighting. You all keep fighting. Get your hands dirty. And we'll, uh, we'll see you in a week.
0: See you next week.
1: Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity
0: with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns.
1: Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, Activist and theology share a tea.
0: The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.